Old Testament reading comes from the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 27, we'll read verses 30 through 40. Lend your attention, this is God's word. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his, of his son's game, that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac his father answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Thus far the reading of God's word. You can turn in the New Testament to the book of Philippians. We'll look particularly at verses 9 through 11, but I'd like to start in verse 3 and read verses 3 through 11. This is God's word. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. Join me in prayer. Our God, we give you thanks for your word. We know that there is an abundance of life therein. We know that your word is a light and a lamp. It is bread, refreshment. So we ask, Lord, that you would be pleased to extend your light unto us as your word is read and proclaimed. That you would prepare our hearts to receive it rightly, Lord. That you would make ready soil to receive the seed of the word. That it might grow and bear fruit. And this to the praise of your glorious name. We pray that above all that we would see the Lord Jesus through the eyes of faith. His excellencies, which you have proclaimed. And raising him from the dead and seating him at your right hand. And revealing yourself in the Son to a world ruined and lost in sin. Help us to see him, O Lord. For in seeing him there is life. We pray this in his name. Amen. At the end of the first book of the Once and Future King, which is the story of King Arthur, something changes definitively. For the first about 250 pages of T.H. White's novel, you meet a boy named Wart. I'm ruining this book for you. I apologize. (laughs) Part of the loveliness of what the author does is he charms you with Wart. Uh, Wart's story unfolding over the first 200 plus pages. And you're wondering... Perhaps, who who is Wart? (laughs) Why do I like Wart so much? Why am I pulling for him? And it's not until the end of the first book, when Wart is at a tournament with the knight to whom he's been squired, Sir Kay, and his father figure, Sir Hector, that Wart encounters a sword in a stone. And Wart pulls the sword from the stone and runs and gives it to Sir Kay. It's a beautiful scene. It's maybe my favorite scene in the whole book. Because you realize at that point that Wart is King Arthur. (laughs) That this wasn't some slave. This wasn't some servant. This wasn't some nobody squire. Though that is how he appeared for the entire first book of the novel. You realize this is the greatest king the world has ever seen. 
sort of. Because Paul introduces us to the greatest king the world has ever seen. And T.H. White, the legends of Arthur, every king that we love, Aragorn, shrouded in ignominy for the first part, only later to reveal himself as the king for which everybody was related. They're all just flickers of this much better story, a true story, a wonderful story where the excellencies of our king are the excellencies of our God and their excellencies, indeed his excellencies, are set on display, not in the victory that he won on some distant battlefield, but in a victory over sin and death. A victory that he won by dying in the stead of those who had sinned and thus deserved to die. As excellent as Arthur is, as excellent as Aragorn is, they fall short of that. There's no way to capture that. Except by gazing at the history of the Lord Jesus Christ. The eternal Son. Very God of very God, who in the fullness of time became man, sent of the Father to die in the stead of sinners, and thereby make known the excellencies of this King, of this God, as this victory is proclaimed, and life, life spreads far as the curse is found. You know I love King Arthur. You know I love Aragorn. The reason I love them is because I see in them flickers of the one whom we all love. The Lord Jesus Christ. The King that has taken his seat upon a throne over a kingdom that will never end. And whose reign is life and peace for all who come to him in faith. Today is a feast day. It's the King's Day. I've never been to a coronation. The next scene in King Arthur isn't as enjoyable. T.H. White kind of glosses over the coronation, but imagine the festivities that would attend the coronation of a king. Each week we celebrate the coronation of our king in the resurrection and the ascension, and the hope of the promise that not only does he reign now, but he's going to return and make his reign all in all. And this is our hope. And it's true hope. It's living hope. Because it is the very plan and purpose of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So let's consider our exalted King this morning and how he surpasses all others. First, I want to note what the Son did. 
Second, I want to note what the Father did. And third, I want to note what creation should do and will do. First, what the Son did. Paul opens verse 9 saying, Therefore, therefore God. He goes on to explain the exaltation, which we're going to look at in a minute, but he roots the exaltation in what he has just said. The resurrection, the ascension, the session, which is Christ's seating at the right hand of the majesty on high, all of that is because of what the Son did. You can extend that into who the Son was. We're not to draw any hard and fast line between who the Son is and what the Son does, because He does what He does because He is who He is. <laughs> but Paul's very interesting, interested in pressing upon us what the Son did. And that being the reason, the basis for what the Father then did. So what did the Son do? You say it any number of ways, but what struck me as I was reading one particular commentary is the Son does not exalt Himself. Look at the verbs in the previous section that are used of the Son. The Son didn't count equality with God as a thing to be exploited for His own gain. The Son made Himself nothing. The Son humbled Himself. The Son obeyed. The Son became a servant. The Son died the death of a criminal. The Son did not exalt Himself. Jesus says this very thing in John chapter 8. He says, I did not come to seek my own glory, but there is one who seeks it. He says, I have come to honor my Father. I have not come to seek my own glory. If there is anyone who has ever walked this earth who had the right to make much of himself, it was the Son. <laughs> Think about how much we make of ourselves. <laughs> Think about our silly accomplishments that we parade around to be praised by others. Think of how little we actually accomplish and how much we make of it. <laughs> The eternal Son did not seek or proclaim His own glory. He did not exalt Himself. I don't know if you've ever been around someone who truly is exceptional. There are exceptional people. I don't mean to downplay this. If you've ever been around someone who truly is exceptional and yet is humble, it's one of the most refreshing experiences maybe ever you're like you're no but you're this and yet you're acting in this way how contrary that is to our flesh <laughs> how 
contrary that is to our instinct, all of our vain boasting, all of our empty conceit, all of our attempts to make much of ourselves. Now maybe you've accomplished remarkable things. I don't know. Most of you I know. You haven't. (laughs) Sorry, I haven't either. (laughs) Maybe you have. Say you have. What have you really accomplished? Just restrict your comparative pool to the world of men. You're not even a Hemingway, and he wasn't even that good of a writer. Let alone Tolstoy. We make much of the little that we do. Christ came as the eternal word of God. The one who was upholding all things, even as he walked this earth. The exact image of the visible, of the invisible God, the radiance of his splendor, the wisdom of God. The most excellent one conceivable. And he did not raise his voice or cry aloud in the street. He was gentle and lowly. He did not exalt himself. He exalted the Father. He became a servant, a servant unto whom his Father, though he was the Son. He became obedient, obedient unto whom the Father. He died. Why? Because that's what the Father purposed. To accomplish the salvation of the lost. The Son came not to do His will, but the One who sent Him. The Son came to honor the Father. Why? Because a world created to honor the Father created to glorify the Father, plunged itself into ruin and had thereby deceived themselves into thinking that the Father wasn't worthy. That the Father is not worthy of your worship, your allegiance, your adoration, your love. He is And Christ is the visible, physical demonstration of that. Why? Because in the Son, we see the Father. Sinner, you can't see the excellencies of the Father anywhere else, and you can only see His excellencies in Christ when He extends His grace to you. But in Christ, you can see them. We deceive ourselves into thinking that our selfish trajectories are somehow validated because we've closed our eyes to His excellencies. Oh, I pray that the Lord would open your eyes to Christ's excellencies, for therein you behold God's excellencies. There are a lot of people who look at the church Look at anyone who bears the name of Christ and content themselves that their understanding of God is thereby validated because they see an imperfect church 
They see an imperfect sinner calling upon the name of Christ. And they latch upon the sin and say, see, this is who God is. Because this one bears his name. This is who God is because these people bear his name. Let me encourage you to look at Jesus, who truly bears his name. And who made this God known in all that he said, in all that he did, in his blameless life. No one has ever spoken the way he has spoken. No one has ever done the things that he has done. No one has ever in such an act of self-sacrificial love put himself forward to die in the stead of enemies. And this is God. Let that destroy all of your notions that he is not worthy. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity. There is no God like Yahweh. And he has made himself known in Jesus Christ. The Son has truly revealed the Father. It's who the Father is. It's why the Father sent Him. And the confirmation that indeed the Son has truly revealed Himself is nowhere more plainly on display than in the resurrection. The confirmation that the Son has truly revealed the Father that God has said, yes, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He said that multiple times throughout his life, right? At his baptism, at the transfiguration. The moment at which that word went forth with unsettling potency <laughs> is in the resurrection. That's what Paul says. What did the Father do? The Son humbled Himself. The Son did not exalt Himself. The Son became obedient. The Son died in the stead of sinners. The Son revealed the Father, and the Father exalted the Son. That's exactly what Paul says. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. But even in this, we see something of the Father. You learn a lot about a person by asking what they like. You learn a lot about who a person is by inquiring into what they like, what delights them. Here we see that the Father was delighted in the Son who considered others more significant than himself. Here we learn exactly what the Old Testament says time and time again, that the Lord delights in humility and is far from the proud. In the exaltation of the Son, we see that the Son and what He had done, yielding His life in obedience and service, that this was the Father's delight. And He confirmed it by raising Him from the dead. The Father highly exalts Him. This is a strange word. He highly exalts Him. Therefore God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. 
We see here the playing out of exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ taught. The one who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It continues to be true for us. It continues to be an encouragement from Christ himself. Hey, you don't got to make much of yourself. You don't, you don't got to make your own way. You don't got to sing your own praises. You don't got to vie for your own piece of the pie. Why? Because I've given you a portion and it's me. <laughs> because I'm going to take care of you. He's going to provide for you everything necessary for life and godliness. So you can rest in that. You can trust in that. You can depend upon that. You can humbly sit in that promise. So that whatever falls upon you, whatever befalls you, whatever comes to you, you need not feel this relentless compulsion to rise up and make your own way, to rise up and make your own salvation, to rise up and sing your own praise, to rise up and vindicate your own name, to rise up and right the wrong that you perceive. Why? Because of his promise that in his perfect and good time, he will exalt the lowly. And that's what we see in the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider the faith of the Son, the trust of the Son, and the vindication that the Father poured out upon him as he raised him from the dead. He was highly exalted and given a name that is above all names. Highly exalted in that what? He didn't just escape from death. This wasn't a recitation. Lazarus was resuscitated, as strictly speaking, given life, being dead. But he died again. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't just escape death, he conquered death. As man, he took his place over death. Spoiler alert, you're going to die. <laughs> No one is escaping death here. Not strictly speaking. You're going to die. Your physical life is going to come to an end. You're probably feeling death in your body at work, maybe right now, for those of you who have dozed off. (laughs) Sleep is a type of death. (laughs) You're going to experience death. How does Christ reveal himself? To John in Revelation, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. He's like, well, I'm alive, not like this. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. They're like, okay, I'm alive, but I'm not alive like that. I don't have the power of life and death. He does. I can't sustain my life for a moment. None of you can sustain your beating heart, your cognizance for one second. The Lord says you don't have the power to make your hair white or black. The Lord Jesus Christ is the living one. 
He has the power of life. And he holds the keys to death in Hades. The keys. Death there envisioned as a prison from which only Christ can free you. You will die. But if you die in Christ, you do not die. Even your earthly death is entrance into life because you die in the one who is the resurrection and the life. I don't care how advanced we get as a species trying to figure out how to overcome aging. We're not going to beat death. There's only ever going to be one way of escape from death, and it's in the resurrected Christ. And the delight of the Father is to set forth the resurrected and ascended one as the free gift of eternal life to those who are going to die physically and apart from Christ. We're going to experience a fate worse than death. Sinner, why will you die in your sins? The Lord takes no delight in the death of the wicked. But there is more joy in heaven when one sinner repents than over 99 so-called righteous who need no repentance. The Father delights to exalt the Son. And the Son is exalted as sinners live through faith in Him. And thus, that's how Paul ends. What creation should do (laughs) and what creation will do. He says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul strikingly says it's the name Jesus to which every knee shall bow. That's striking for any number of reasons. We talk about Isaiah 45 as basically word for word what Paul says here, except God says to me, every knee shall bow and tongue confess. Here it says to Jesus. But what's so striking is Paul uses the name Jesus here. Jesus. We've become rather accustomed to the name Jesus because rightfully so, it is the name of our Lord. But it's just a common name. It would have struck them as just a common name. I had a professor in seminary who tried to kind of toe the line rhetorically to get us to feel this. We don't forget. It's like, at the name of Steve. It's just a common name. It's his earthly name. It's the name Joseph, his adopted father, gave to him. The fact that this is a man. I mean, a man who's not just a man, but a true man. That the entire cosmos is going to bow to. That it's Jesus of Nazareth. That it's Jesus crucified a criminal. Mm. That it's Jesus 
suspended between heaven and earth as a curse. That the Father says, that's the king of everything. Bow to him. That's what it means when not only the name Jesus is set forth, it's Jesus of Nazareth. This is, this is the son of Mary. The man from Galilee. But the name is also the title, Lord. That's what the confession is. Jesus Christ is Lord. King. resurrection and the ascension is the father setting forth the king for whom creation was waiting from the very beginning the seed of the woman next chapter the seed of Abraham next chapter the seed of David climax Jesus that's the king he's lord that's how he closes his earthly ministry All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Proof? I conquered death. Show me a king that's done that. You know this is like one of my favorite points to harp on. You know it is. Sargon's gone. Ashurbanipal, gone. These are Assyrian kings. They thought very highly of themselves. (laughs) Esarhaddon, gone. Nebuchadnezzar, gone. Cyrus, gone. Caesar, gone. Napoleon, gone. Not the one whose name remains forever. His name remains forever. Their reputation is marred by their death. His is enshrined in his life. A kingdom that knows no end. Why? Because it's written with the power of his resurrection life. Such that nothing can stand against it. Such that it's in his name and in his name alone that there is salvation. Jesus Christ is Lord by declaration of the Father. Now know what that doesn't mean. Know what that does imply about who isn't Lord. The God of this world is not Lord. Scripture's plain. This world lies in the grip of the evil one. Christ has come to undo the works of the devil. He might posture at a sort of authority that he might even kind of quasi-rightfully have, but he is subject to this Lord. That's what it means, this comprehensive vision of the cosmos, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven. Spiritual powers. Principles. The Lord of darkness himself, this figure who has been plaguing God's people from the beginning has been cast down, Revelation 12. The God of this world is not Lord. The rulers of this earth are not Lord. They serve a lawful role. But when they appropriate to themselves the position of pseudo-God, we humbly, sometimes not so humbly, (laughs) humbly have to say that we bow the knee to the true Lord. 
and therefore we disobey. You, not God. Perhaps most strikingly, if Jesus is Lord, you're not. If he's conquered the world and the devil, he's also conquered the flesh. The proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord frees us from the enslavement of these so-called lords vying for such unequivocal allegiance. The God of this world isn't Lord. Caesar is not Lord. You are not Lord. And that's good news. Take a look at your kingdom. Take a look at your little tiny kingdom that has the marks of your flesh all over it. That demonstrates plainly that were you to be king on a larger scale, the destruction would just be writ large. (laughs) That the flesh that is evidence in the lives of the maybe two, three people over whom you have some sway... Were you in a different position, a greater position, having sway over more souls, the destruction would just reverberate into that amphitheater. Give thanks that he circumscribed your authority first. And then give thanks that you are not Lord. Because this Lord writes life into his kingdom. This Lord writes love into his kingdom. This Lord writes true justice into his kingdom, righteousness into his kingdom, holiness into his kingdom. Everything with the kingdoms of man had forfeited by their sin and corruption is on display in the Son and in his kingdom. Give thanks that Jesus Christ is Lord. Have you confessed with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord? Have you believed in your heart that God has raised him from the dead? That's what God calls all men to do. You can imagine a kingdom that's gone to war against heaven. You can imagine how that's going to (laughs) end. But then all of a sudden the king of heaven comes forth and say, put down your weapons. Run to me and find not just toleration, but a welcome in peace as sons. That's the gospel. That's the message of peace that continues to go forth as the Lord in great patience stays his judicial hand towards a world that continues to reject him, that continues to defy him, that continues to refuse his very existence. It's not weakness that he doesn't send the Son now. It's kindness It's patience so that more and more might see the excellencies of this God as this gospel 
of Christ in the stead of sinners, of Christ as the righteous one, of Christ as the one who brings forgiveness, of Christ as the true peace between God and man, as that gospel continues to go forth, more and more are being plundered, more and more are having their eyes opened to their folly, to their sin, to their darkness, and casting themselves at the feet of this king and finding someone who doesn't just barely extend mercy, but who delights to extend mercy and grace and finding in him the one who alone is worthy of unequivocal allegiance. Have you bowed the knee to this son? Have you considered the excellencies of his worth shining forth so plainly on the tapestry of your life of sin? Have you considered that this is the true and living God? Run to him. Fling yourself at his feet. Find in him riches of grace and mercy on fathomable that's the call now to enemies own the son in faith bow to him while he is to be had in amnesty (laughs) i think i used that rightly in peace on terms of peace because this closing statement is also a picture of the end of all things Like I said before, just because you close your eyes to the fact that Jesus is Lord, just because you close your eyes to the fact that God is worthy and indeed demands your worship, doesn't mean it's not true. (laughs) So the picture that he gives, the end of the story, I already spoiled the end of your life. Let me spoil the end of history for you. Everybody bows and acknowledges that Jesus is Lord whether it's as a son and a brother or as a vanquished enemy. This truth will be publicly proclaimed in every register of the cosmos on that great day. And for the enemies of Christ who refuse to obey the gospel, continue to harden themselves against such a magnitude of love, it will be a dreadful day. All of the kingdoms of earth that have fallen before a conquering army barely flicker the terror and the horror of God's just judgment being wrought upon those who refuse the Son, who despise His grace, who reject such a glorious gospel. But for the people of the kingdom, for those who bow the knee now in faith, looking to this king, it will be a day like no other. I said, I wish I was at the coronation of Arthur, or at least one coronation. I feel like you have to have a king to really get the loveliness of a coronation of an inauguration is just not quite the same. You read about the coronation of Aragorn and the return of the king. You read about the coronation of Arthur. 
That will be the feast day to end all feast days. Mm. It's what we look forward to every week as the life is set before us and who says, we're going to take up the cup together at the feast to end all feasts when I return for you. Beloved, set your hope on nothing less than that. Derive your joy, your true joy, your abiding joy, your true comfort, your abiding comfort for nothing less than the promise of the King whereby He has sworn that He will return and make known the excellencies in full of His kingdom to the glory of God his Father. Let's pray. Mm. Father, sanctify us by your word. Your word is truth. Magnify your Son. Exalt him before our hearts. Grant that we may see and bow and confess and follow after him all of our days. until the day he returns and your glory is made all in all and we finally see plainly what it has been our joy to confess now by faith. Father, humble the hearts of those who continue to reject this beautiful king, this excellent savior, this glorious gospel. Open their eyes that they may run to him. Pray in his name. Amen. Mm-hmm.